Father, thank you for this time to look at your word together and um, thank you for this precious chapter, Romans chapter 8, and how it holds out real hope for us, whatever we face day by day. Um, thank you that you are with us by your spirit. Help us to understand more of that and what that means in our lives now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stephen Fry, the uh, actor, comedian, um, was asked, what would he say if he met God in whom he, he doesn't believe? And he said this in an interview on Irish TV a few years ago. He said, I'd say, bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world that is so full of injustice and pain? That is what I would say. Now, that's a fairly sharp way of putting a common objection and question that people have about Christian faith. It's sometimes seen as the Achilles heel of Christianity. All this stuff about how, you know, God loves you and, and Jesus dying and rising from the dead. Well, that's all very well. But, but what about suffering? You haven't got an answer for that, have you, people think? For lots of people, suffering is their kind of armchair reason not to engage any further with Christian faith. It's a philosophical get-out-of-jail-free card. You know, you can play that card and then you can get on with your life your own way because obviously biblical Christianity doesn't make any sense. For others, of course, it's much more personal. If the uh, philosophical objectors are in the spectator stands, kind of watching other people suffer and saying, you know, there's the reason over there why I won't consider Christianity. Others, both Christians and non-Christians, are kind of on the pitch, in the thick of the action, getting hurt, feeling pain, asking questions from a position of deep agony and confusion and frustration. I don't understand why it has to be this hard. Why COVID and, and, and all the chaos that that has brought? Why yet another war in Europe? Why is politics in this country and across the globe in such a mess? At the end of last week's reading, Paul flagged up that he was about to raise this issue of suffering. We've heard in, in Romans chapter 7 and 8 a, a lot about sin in our lives as Christians and how that fits with being people who have a new master, under new ownership, yet still living with the after effects of life under the old master of the flesh. And last time we heard the positive obligation that comes from our new life as spirit-filled children of God to live in a way that is consistent with our new identity by putting to death the sin that is consistent with our old identity. And then he ended with a second consequence of our new identity of being uh, children of God and, and Jesus' brothers and sisters and waiting for the inheritance of the new heavens and the new earth. What's the second consequence? He had it in verse 17, if you look. It's a path that involves suffering like Jesus did. He says, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. And we hear that and we think, okay, here we go. Here comes the, the small print that no one bothers to read. 
you know, you know the endless screens you have to sort of click through to get to what you're actually buying or, or, or downloading or, or installing. You know, yes, of, yes, of course I've read the terms and conditions. Let's get on to the good stuff. A few years ago, the um, website GameStation um, thought they would uh, test to see whether people actually read their terms and conditions. I think you can probably guess what the answer is. They added an immortal soul clause to their terms, which upon acceptance of the terms involved surrendering your immortal soul to GameStation. And they also offered a £5 voucher in those terms to those who unchecked the box to remove that particular clause. And 88% of users did not spot it. And for many people, suffering can feel like that small print that gets discovered far too late, leaving the likes of uh, Stephen Fry to say, you know, hey, look, you haven't thought of this, have you, Christians? Yet yeah, here is Paul bringing suffering front and centre in what is the high point of the book of Romans. What's it doing here? Well, we've, heard, we, we, we've had all this talk of hope and glory here in verse 17, and it's, it's all been so positive. And you would think, oh, surely suffering is only going to threaten hope. Suffering is going to suppress hope. Suffering is going to be a downer and a problem and an embarrassment for Christian faith and you know it's really best swept under the carpet but Paul here is showing actually the opposite is the case far from suppressing Christian hope the, the existence of suffering in the world strengthens and deepens it deepens Christian hope and, and, and in what follows in, in our reading verses 18 to 27 Paul brings together the real sense of pain and groaning that he talks about and grief that is associated with being on the pitch in the thick of the action, suffering in this fallen world. But he brings that together with real hope. And the headline is verse 18. Have a look at that. Verse 18. I consider that our present suffering is not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in it. Weigh it up, he says. Put it on the scales. Even in the greatest and deepest of pain here and now, there is even greater glory to come. But then in offering real hope for the future that changes everything now, there is no suggestion that this means minimising the sense of pain and grief that we may feel now. And he speaks of that in terms of groaning in these verses. And he highlights three different groanings that illustrate that tension between pain and grief that we feel now and the hope that transforms everything. Okay, so three different groanings. Here's the first one. Creation groans for the very great glory to come. Creation groans for the very great glory to come. Verses 18 to 22. The beginning of an answer to that strongly worded and widely held objection from Stephen Fry is that God did not create a world full of suffering and children with bone cancer or whatever it might be. The world God created was good because God is good. The first reading that we heard from Genesis chapter 3 is the conclusion of what happened right at the start of creation. It was human beings that turned their backs on their creator and we heard the judgment that God brought on Adam and Eve for their sin. And crucially, we heard the judgment affected not just them, but the whole creation. 
That's what those, uh, the, the things that God says to Adam, he says uh, back in um, chapter 3, cursed is the ground because of you, verse 17 in chapter 3. Cursed is the ground because of you, that through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And uh, so do you see that, that because of you, because of the sin you have committed, Adam, uh, the, the ground, the earth itself is also cursed. And therefore the world that we live in and, and um, are part of has things like COVID and volcanoes and everything else in between. See, Adam and Eve had been created to rule the world under God's authority as his vice regents, his prime ministers, his, his loyal government. But when human beings became disloyal to their sovereign's authority and sought to govern the world and themselves without reference to him, the result was chaos. Not just for them, but for the whole creation. Because that is how creation has been set up with human beings to care for it. And that is why we live in what we call a fallen world. I don't know if you're familiar with the film uh, The Princess Bride. It's one of the most quotable uh, films. There is probably just one of the best films that there is. Uh, but it has uh, this uh, line that the dread pirate Roberts says to Buttercup. And he says this, Life is pain, princess. Anyone who says differently is selling something. See, that is what life is like. And, and, and Paul summarises that in verse 20. The creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. That's talking about God bringing his judgment in such a way that we're now reminded daily of the fallenness of the world around us, that sin is real, that it's a problem, and it's not something we're going to be able to sort out ourselves. And therefore, verse 19, if the whole of creation was affected by sin, the whole of creation is waiting for the children of God to be revealed. Which means for the day when those who are now children of God will be seen by the entire universe and acknowledged to be so when Jesus returns. That's what we're waiting for that day when we will see that. And on that day, verse 20, creation itself will be liberated from the decay that resulted from human sin. And so meanwhile, the whole creation waits and groans and when we suffer it often feels deeply unfair and, and, and unjust you know suffering itself is kind of distributed between different people it's distributed unequally and unfairly that's part of why it's so painful one person has terrible suffering and gets cancer at a young age totally randomly it's, it's just not fair and somebody else uh, doesn't and, it, and that is just one way that means the whole of creation is groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, says Paul in verse 22. Creation is waiting like a mother waiting to give birth, waiting for something that will transform everything, something that will be very great, that future glory will be transformed and redeemed bodies in a transformed and redeemed creation. No more sin, no more suffering. This is the hope for the earth, the ultimate answer to climate change and, and natural disasters and pandemics and everything else in between. But, but what kind of groaning does Paul have in mind when he talks about whole creation groaning in verse 22? Is it a kind of hopeless and despairing groaning? 
No, he says it's the groaning of a woman in labour. Now, we don't want to get too much into the details, but there is a reason he chooses this kind of metaphor. Now, I, I acknowledge, I say this as a man, and I don't, I don't mean it flippantly, because there are all kinds of ways in which talking about this can be painful for many different reasons. But if you stood outside a labour ward and you heard what was going on inside without knowing what it is, you could be forgiven for thinking there is something horrific happening behind those doors. That is the nature of childbirth, excruciating pain. And yet, and yet, the, the pain of childbirth is different from other types of pain because it is a pain that has a purpose. It is a pain that brings about life, not death. And so what's going on behind those doors, as it were, is not the bringing about of death, but the bringing about of life, new life. And so that's why the, the pain of childbirth is a really apt picture for Paul to use here, because that is what the pain, as we experience whatever pain it is in this world, and we feel the pain of that day by day as we wait for our future glory, it is that kind of pain that has hope and new life at the end of it. Now, we live in this broken world. We still sin. We still feel the pain and the mess of all that. It is real suffering. Let's be clear that Paul is talking about. You can't minimise or explain it or pretend it isn't there. But it's pain that's heading somewhere. And one of the things to say back to the Stephen Fries or whoever it is who complain that you know, no God they can believe in could allow suffering in his world. One of the things you can say is this. Have you got anything better to offer? Because suffering as a Christian may be hard to make sense of. But actually suffering as an atheist is accepting that there is absolutely no meaning, no purpose. And crucially, absolutely no hope. The best you can hope for is oblivion after your meaningless life is over and that too is the future of the universe as the world will you know whatever else goes on the world is eventually sucked into the sun and all the beauty all the art all the joy all the love that human beings have experienced comes to absolutely nothing but if christianity offers something incomparably better and more wonderful though it doesn't mean we don't still groan ourselves and that is what Paul goes on to in verses 23 to 25. We've, we've seen in, in verses 18 to 22, creation groans. But then verses 23 to 25, we groan with eagerness and patience. We groan with eagerness and patience, 23 to 25. Not only so, he says, but we ourselves, you have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship. Back in verse 15, up above there. We heard that we are already children of God with the full inheritance rights of sons in that culture. So there is a kind of now and not yet to what Paul is saying. We are children of God if we're trusting Jesus. But you can't tell that simply by looking at us. You know, we look the same as the rest of the world. But as he said in verse 19, we are waiting 
for that to be revealed. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed and made clear to us and to everyone else when our bodies will be made new. So we are, we have that new identity, but we're waiting for it to be fully clear to everyone and ourselves. And, and we think, why can't that be now then? Why do we have to wait as we struggle on maybe with physical or mental pain and suffering and awareness every day that, you know, your body doesn't work properly? Wouldn't it be great if God fast forwarded to the end and we could have those new bodies now? And Paul says, verse 24, you've got to realise what hope is about. <laughs> you can't hope for something that's already here. The whole point of hope, even the sure and certain hope of Christian faith, is that it's not here yet. So another film, uh, The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. Uh, the brilliant Dev Patel plays Sonny, the uh, irrepressibly cheerful hotel manager of the uh, basically half-finished hotel. I don't know if you've seen it, but he's an example of someone who is constantly living in hope of what's to come when the hotel is finished. As he seeks to create, in his words, a home for the elderly so wonderful that they will simply refuse to die. That's what he says. But he has this line that he keeps saying in the midst of all that. He says this, everything will be all right in the end. And if it's not all right, it's not yet the end. And the question, of course, is whether he really has grounds for that endless optimism in the face of daily chaos and things appearing not really to be in line with his vision for this hotel. But that is a good way of saying what Paul is saying here. Because actually, whether or not Sonny in, in Best Exotic Marigold Hotel has grounds for hope, Christians do have grounds for real hope and optimism. We have real hope that is not just wishful thinking or, or blind positive vibes, but real hope because Jesus died and rose from the dead. So everything will be all right in the end. And if it's not all right, it's not yet the end. And so we need to wait eagerly. Can you see in verse 23 and then patiently? Verse 25, eagerly and patiently. Eagerly as we, as we long for those new bodies to come, but patiently as we realise that that time is still to come. Each of us will tend either to eagerness or patience a little bit you know, more, you know, some will be more eager and, and not very patient and others will be just patient and, and, and not very eager. You know, some of us are great at, at, at patience but so much that we actually stop really expecting anything to change. We kind of resign ourselves. You know, life is pain. That is all we can say. Just accept it. Keep your head down. Get on with it. You know, the way to avoid disappointment is to lower your expectations. It's kind of glass half empty. But Paul is saying, wait eagerly. Jesus is coming back. There is real hope for the future to sustain us right here, right now. I don't know whether we identify with that, you know, being more patient and eager, but maybe we're more the other way. And our eagerness for something better makes us instead frustrated and disillusioned because we want heaven on earth right now and we won't stand for things not going according to plan. Be patient in your eagerness, Paul is saying. So whichever you, you tend towards, eagerness or patience, we need to turn up both to the max. 
in the face of illness, bereavement, depression, whatever big or small sadnesses and frustrations we face right now, we can know it, it, it will be all right. We need not despair. The day will come when what God has in store will be revealed as Jesus returns. But we need to wait patiently. And remember that verse 18, our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. Think how wonderful that will be as you weigh up the things that we've experienced now that are painful and difficult. But the glory that is coming when Jesus returns with the new bodies and we live with him will make, will put all that in perspective and will make us rejoice. And so we keep looking there. We need to be eager for that and to wait patiently because that day will certainly come. And yet... If we're honest, we feel so weak as we wait. And that is why as we finish now, the final two verses are so wonderful. So thirdly, the Spirit groans with us and for us. The Spirit groans with us and for us. Verses 26 and 27. First it was creation groaning, of course. Then it was us Christians groaning for trusting in Jesus. Now it is the Holy Spirit himself helping us in our weakness. We saw last time, one of the privileges of being children of God is that we can pray to our Father. And as we suffer, we can pray. But the thing is, when you are suffering, it's really hard to pray. And you feel really weak. And I know that for myself. I don't, I'm sure others do too. You know, I've dealt, been dealing in, in my life, as many will know, with... Um, Crohn's disease and rheumatoid arthritis and have both my hips replaced and serious bowel surgery. And there have been times, particularly in the past, where prayer, praying to God, is you kind of know that's probably what you ought to be doing, but you just feel so weak because the, the, the definition of weakness is being unable to act and suffering so often reduces us to weakness in that way where you just think it's enough just to kind of lie here and, and, and I don't feel able to do any more. Don't despair, says Paul, even then. Just when you thought there could be no more good news, but no, there is. The Spirit has got this. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. So the implication is the Spirit is praying when we've run out of words to pray. What's he praying? He's praying, come Lord Jesus, bring that new world that we long for. He is groaning with us and for us. And, and while we do not know what to pray or how to pray, the Spirit is God himself. And he knows how to pray according to God's will, verse 27. And of course, God the Father listens to him. And that means we are weak, but we're never victims of our circumstances. We are weak, but we're never forgotten or lost or abandoned. In fact, it's at the point where we are weakest and God feels most far away and we feel most alone. That is when the Spirit has us and holds us and is praying on our behalf. So be encouraged. So often in our weakness, we just think, oh, I'm such a rubbish Christian and I get it wrong and I should be sort of boldly 
claiming God's promises and trusting him. But actually, the whole point of the gospel is God meets us in our weakness. And he says, it's not up to you to get it together because Jesus has done that for you. So rest in him, trust him, know that the spirit is praying on your behalf. Let's return as we finish to Stephen Fry. When the atheist suffers, the thing is, he or she is truly alone. There, there is no real hope. There is only wishful thinking and hoping for the best and crossing your fingers and even just accepting that death is a merciful release and that's all we can say. But for the Christian, we may not have all the answers such that we can tie up the suffering question in a parcel with a little bow and say, look, you know, there we go, there's the answer. But actually, we can go better than that and say, here is God who became a man and suffered and died the death that every human being faces and took the judgment that every human being deserves. And he did that to bring real hope for the future. And so that even now, while we groan as part of a broken world and we wait and we long for that future, we can say we're not alone. We have a God who suffered as man like us and for us. And now that spirit who lives in us and unites us to Jesus and makes us God's children is groaning with us and for us. And he will get us to the glory that God has in store for those who wait eagerly and patiently. Let's pray. Father, in our, in our weakness, in our suffering, we praise you for Jesus. That he has come into the world and suffered with us and for us. We praise you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who is interceding for us. We praise you, therefore, for the great glory to come that we can look to. And that means that the pain that we feel now is groaning as in the pains of childbirth as we wait for the glory to come. We praise you for these precious promises. Please help anyone who has not yet understood what it means to trust Jesus to see that he meets us in our weakness, not our strength. And to put their trust in him See that living for him is the way to find real hope and joy and life in a fallen world. Help all of us to do that, whatever these days and weeks bring for us. And help us then to share that hope with the world around us. Lost and broken and despairing. Thank you that we have such good news to share. Amen.